Well, good morning, and glad to see you're here. And of course, I am glad to be here. Very glad to be here. I was thinking about Greg. He said he had to learn all that stuff and about the vacuum cleaner, but I heard that the hardest job he had was learning where to find that button on the dishwasher, the one that turns it on. <laughs> But he got it, and I guess he's doing well, and we're thankful that Carol's doing well, too. I'm just very grateful because uh, it was a scary situation for her, I know. And uh, she's on the road to recovery. It's just going to be a long one, but we need to keep her keep her in our prayers in that respect. Um, next Sunday, don't forget, I'm not going to preach, but Brother John White will be here, and he will be speaking in my stead. And so we're looking forward to that. So not only should we be looking forward to that, but because he's going to be here, we know he's going to be making a long trip from Minnesota down to Chattanooga. So let's keep him in prayer as far as his travel, safety, and so on on that long trip. So he'll be here next Sunday morning to speak for us at 1030. All right, I can't think of anything else I was supposed to remember to say, so I'll go on, and then when I get about in the middle of the message, I'll remember whatever it was. We're in 1 Peter. 1 Peter, and we're in the second chapter. We're working our way through this book, a book of instruction concerning our condition and status in this world as strangers and pilgrims, as those who are called of God to experience the things that we're going through with a purpose in view. With a goal at hand, he states in verse 9, of receiving the salvation of your souls. That is something that lies out in the future. And most of this epistle, we said, uh, beginning all the way back in, in about the middle of chapter 1, deals with exhortation. It is encouragement to the Christian who is observing this calling, to the Christian who knows what the calling is, who knows what lies out in the future, to that one Peter is writing to encourage us to keep on keeping on, as it were. That's the common, you know, well, I say common. It's not so common today. I guess that was back when... Is that pretty well dated? That's, I guess, back in the 60s, isn't it? Wow. Keep on trucking. Man, that's an old one, yeah. But just keep on keeping on. And we need that kind of encouragement. When we're in the midst of trial, when we're in the midst of temptation or grief or sorrow or whatever it might be, whatever valley that we're going through, we need encouragement. And encouragement, as we find it, well, we've already seen it once in this letter that Peter has written. We're going to find it again later on, not in, in what we're going to speak of today, but to love one another. Love the brethren. Or he says, love the brotherhood. And it, the brotherhood is that community of believers who has the eye of faith that is looking to that future glory, that future hope that the Lord has extended to us and holds out by faith. And in that community, they're to be encouraging one another, to loving one another. As a matter of fact, the writer to the Hebrews says it uh, in the same manner. And he says it, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. In other words, in view of the trial that you're going through and as we observe and see that day coming, as we see its nearness approaching, it is so much the more. And you cannot do that. You cannot do it without assembling with God's people. You cannot do that with meeting together. You can't do it lying at home in bed. You can't do it on the golf course. You know, you can't do it other places. It is God's people assembled together, fellowshipping together, where encouragement takes place. The kind of love that he is speaking of here takes place. 
And so the context of that love, that encouragement to keep pressing forward, to keep pressing on, takes place in a context of God's people interacting in and you think of the the illustration Paul gives us of the body of Christ with the flesh, the sinews, you know, the joints, the ligaments, all of that connected and working together. So it's a together thing. It's not a maverick situation. It's not a situation where you can walk off and leave the church and expect to go it alone and to make it by faith. That is not the picture painted in the New Testament. The picture of the ecclesia of God's people assembled together is for unity and oneness of spirit and heart and soul and mind towards God and towards your neighbor. And so... In, in what Peter's speaking of here then, as we come to the section we're looking at here today, uh, well, actually, in, in looking at last week's, uh, we saw him moving into a whole other section here, and that had to do with the life of the community, the life of God's people when they come together, when they're assembled, but as well in your conduct in the community outside. And so in this very first portion, we saw our relationship in government, how we're to conduct ourselves with the state and what our relationship would be. And now today, we're looking at a section that deals with something that on the surface would appear very foreign to you and I, and that's slavery, servants. So let's read this section here, and let's just see what kind of application this might have for us today. He says in verse 18, Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy. If a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully, then what glory is it if when you are buffeted for your faults, you shall take it patiently? And the implied answer is, of course, Nothing. It'll do you no profit. But if when you do well and suffer for it and you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even thereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have this joy and privilege to meet together. We're grateful for your word and and the confidence, the assurance that it brings to us, the knowledge of God that is imparted through your word. We thank you, Father, for the direction and the guidance that it gives to us. We're grateful also for the fact that In your word, you have revealed the future, and you have taught us through our Lord Jesus Christ what to expect in the future, why we have been put here on this earth, and what the glorious outcome will be for those who have followed your example and have lived by faith. So we pray that you will open our hearts and our minds in this passage this morning that we might know that which you have to speak to each and every one of us. Some of these things will maybe apply to us as an entire body, as a community of believers. But there are other things that, Lord, you might speak to us individually about. And so we pray that our hearts will be open to these things too. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in the day in which this letter was written, and Paul, or Peter here, 
was speaking to these strangers and these pilgrims, it was a day of, basically you could just say it was a day of slavery. The Roman Empire was basically filled with slaves. It's said that even in many of the larger cities throughout Rome, over half of the population would have been slaves. Now, this word here for servant or, or slave in this, in this verse 18 here is um, it's a word that applies to a household. Uh, oikos. It has to do, it's where we get our word economy. We talk about an, an economy, the economy of, of America. You know, that has parameters. It has limitations to it. But it has things affecting it from all from all over the world. Well, in a very smaller context, you can have an economy within your own home because you have financial affairs, legal affairs, parental responsibilities, and all sorts of other things that affect an individual home. So a home itself can have an economy. Then you could have a township, a county, a state, a country, and you have the entire world economy can apply to each and every one of these. Well, here we're talking about a servant in a home, a household servant. And this household, so it's a specific group of people that Peter is addressing here. And so when he, in verse 1, says Peter, an apostle to the strangers and pilgrims in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Bithynia, and Asia, and so on, he, he, in this particular point, is speaking to a select group of people. But he also could very well be speaking to a much larger group of people than what we would commonly expect. He's speaking to probably someone who represents quite a large crowd of people in those strangers and pilgrims. And matter of fact, in verse 11 of chapter 2, we saw he mentioned strangers and pilgrims again, sojourners. These with temporary residents, parked alongside, as it were, dwelling alongside someone whom they had no rights with, no companionship with, no relationship with, because they belong to another community, a community of believers that are united in one head, and that is Jesus Christ. A, or as he says earlier here in chapter 2, who are united together as living stones with one common cornerstone holding them together, giving structure, giving uh, purpose and, and direction to the whole structure of living stones. And so these servants here, he's got something specific to tell them regarding their conduct. Now the life of a slave in the Roman Empire was not an easy one, no matter what the situation was. Uh, it was not an easy life. You know, and there are situations, you, um, you know, we hear about it even here in America. We just don't know about the kinds of slavery conditions that are going on even here in America today. They're just not widely broadcast, particularly with foreigners who are brought over here and held in servitude by those who were lorded over them and then using them for their own selfish ends and purposes. Well, that's essentially what we had here. They were simply a piece of property, just like you owned a gun or a machete or a spear or a piece of land or a motorcycle. They, so they, they were theirs to do with whatever they chose to do with. And so Peter's first words of instructions to these servants, to these household servants, was be subject to your masters with all fear. Be in submission to them. Now, I don't know if you noticed there, that word be is um, not in the original Greek. And there's a reason. is because it refers back to verse 13. Well, look at verse 13. You notice there where it says be uh, or excuse me, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man. And that word there is an imperative thing. It's a command that we're to do, to obey. 
And what we're looking at here, when we see the word subject again, it's simply a continued reference to the theme of subjection and submissiveness. So the reason I bring that out is because if you look at chapter 3 and verse 1, you'll notice it says, likewise, you wives, be in subjection. He continues the thought. The theme is the submissiveness of a Christian. He is to be submissive to government. Slaves or household servants are are to be submissive to their masters. Wives are to be in submission to their husbands. Verse 7, likewise ye husbands dwell with them. He doesn't use the word submit, submit or subject, but a, a husband is to be submissive to his role as a husband in the treatment of his wife. And then in verse 8, he says, finally, be ye all of one mind. And the thought again is implied there that each one we are to be submissive to the other or in subjection. We are not to hold one in preference over the other, nor is one to lord it over another. Not even the pastor. If we just look ahead a couple of chapters, what did Peter tell, tell the, the pastors there in chapter 5? He tells them there uh, in verse 2, Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a steady mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage. There is no lordship principle in the community of Christ. We have one Lord, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our head. So these household servants, in view of their one supreme head, the Lord Jesus Christ, he said, be in subjection to your masters with all fear. Obey them. Listen to them with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. You know, there were good and gentle masters, which, by the way, that word masters is where we get our English word for a despot. You know, it's, it, and it's the common word used in the Bible to, ref, to refer to a household owner. Now, that word despot has taken on some severe connotations for you and I. We, we look at somebody who is severe and harsh, but not always so. Some masters were gentle, good towards their servants. They treated them well. But he said some were froward or perverse or crooked. As a matter of fact, this word froward comes from a word where we get a Greek word where we get our word scoliosis. And if you know the word scoliosis, it has to do with somebody who has a severe curvature of the spine. It's out of place. It's crooked. It's not normal. And that's what he's talking about here. Some, some masters were that way. Some were crooked. They were unreasonable. The very opposite of, of scoliosis or scoliosis would be being straight. So a straight spine as opposed to a curved one. And these masters would would abuse or mistreat their household servants. And Peter's instructions to them was, no matter what the condition is, no matter what the prospects are and the condition you find yourself in, you are to be in submission. Submission to your master. Now he gives us the word for in verse 19. So we're about to find out the reason why. What purpose would lie behind such a situation? Because I'm I'm willing to say that probably today, if we found ourselves in a job situation where we found our boss being unbearable, unreasonable, crooked, we probably would have the tendency to say, I'm not going to work for a guy like that. And so we would just quit. And move on and look for a better position, better job, better conditions. Well, that wasn't an option for these household servants, these slaves. They were in bondage. They were being held there. 
And so now he tells us, or this is thankworthy. If a man, for conscience sake, toward God, endure grief, suffering wrongfully. In other words, we're not talking about the good and gentle master here. We're talking about the abusive one. We're talking about the one who mistreats. And under that condition, when you are faced with that, you're to bear up under that. You are to, with a good conscience toward God, suffer wrongfully. And this word thankworthy, it's unusual. It's an unusual translation here. Most every place else you find this word in in the Greek New Testament, it's it's translated grace. It's our familiar word, charis, for grace. This is grace, or this is favor. Or, if you'll look down at the end of verse 20, right at the very end, it says, this is acceptable with God. It's the same word again, charis. Translated acceptable. So what the idea here is then is that a person, this household slave and servant who obeys his master, his unruly, unreasonable, crooked, perverse master and does so patiently. So there's a right spirit. There's a right attitude that we are to face when when we undergo these things. He says, if you endure this and suffer wrongfully, then this is grace. This is God's favor. This is well-pleasing, acceptable to God. Remember in um, Genesis chapter 9? Now, I haven't looked. I didn't even look it up. It just occurred to me to think. Uh, Verse 6, you remember it says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And some have alluded to the idea that this may be an allusion to the Old Testament word, he found favor with God, or he found grace with God. Or a slave here, this household servant, has in this situation, having suffered wrongly, has found favor with God, or grace with God. Now, he tells us in verse 20, he extends that uh, explanation of what the purpose of this is all about. For what glory is it when ye be buffeted for your faults? And by the way, the word buffeted there means beaten up, you know, hit with a rod, cracked with a whip, actually physically wounded. And we know that in that day, that's exactly how some masters treated their, their servants. He says, what glory is it in a situation like that if you take it patiently for getting beaten when it's your own fault? When you be buffeted for your faults. And of course, in a rhetorical question like that, we always say, you always, in a rhetorical question, you expect the obvious answer. So the obvious answer on its face when you read this is there's no glory in that. There's nobody to speak well of you. And I don't know that the word glory here has any divine implications at this point. I think he's just talking on the human level of the glory that you and I might say, well, somebody speaks well of you. Somebody said, well, he really handled that well, didn't he? That's your glory. That's, I think, what he's talking about here. And he's simply saying, what glory, what honor, what prestige, or what what well-spoken word could be said for you when you impatiently endure beatings when it was your own fault? There's nothing in that. But, he says, on the other hand, if when you do well and suffer for it and you take it patiently, this is grace or favor with God. It is thankworthiness or it's acceptable. It is well-received. It is that which God can look upon and say, or or look with favor upon that person. It's like he's, you know, it it reminds me of God looking upon a person at the judgment seat of Christ, and he says, well done. 
thou good and faithful servant. Although it's not the same word for servant there. But it's, it's a well done. And God will look upon that with favor, with grace. He will, in other words, we could use it as a verb and say, He will grace you at that point. Now, <clears throat> He goes on then with another four. He proceeds on to give us an explanation of then as, as to why God would favor someone this way. Why is it that this stands as a principle in the Word of God that he would favor someone who willingly and patiently endures shameful treatment when he has been done wrong? And by the way, that implies very clearly a moral wrong has been done to you. And you have every right, basically, to appeal against being done wrong. But you patiently endure what's been done to you. And he gives us then that well-known verse as an example for us. In his steps. For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you or ye all of you, plural, should follow his steps. And by the way, the word in is there in the Greek. Follow in his steps. So, first thing we notice is, hereunto were you called. As a part of a Christian's calling to be a disciple and a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ is to follow in his steps. To suffer as he suffered. Following in his steps means, means suffering as he suffered also. Because Christ also suffered for us in our stead, in our place, then, he says, he has left us an example. An example. In other places in the New Testament, we find the word type or tupas. Translated as example. That's not the word here. The word here has the idea of um, tracing over something. The actual word means an, an underwriting. So you have a writing that is under something else. And so if you put, just like when you're a child, you have a sheet of paper with a drawing on it, and you are unskilled, you are not mature enough to draw your own picture, you cannot hold the pen or the brush steady enough to paint or draw your own picture, so you, you, you trace over it. You follow someone else's steps who has already drawn the picture for you. And so you trace the outline and you follow the example. That's one sense. Another sense might be the idea of you have the picture sitting up here in front of you and you're looking at the example and then you just draw your own. That would be another way to have uh, an example of this word here, this, this underwriting. It's held out before you. So you picture a, a classroom full of art students. And at the head of each desk, the teacher has put a drawing. And then you're to trace it out. Another example might be... Um, and you may have seen pictures like this or sketches where someone has partially drawn out a picture, a sketch, to give you an idea of something and then to train you, they are, you are to come along and fill the lines in and complete the picture. So you're again, you're following in the steps. Now all three of those can give us the idea, the understanding of what he means here by this underwriting this example of the Lord Jesus Christ, when he says, follow in his steps. So consequently, what it means is to follow in his steps does not mean that we can exactly walk in exactly the same step that Jesus walked in. Because you cannot perfectly trace over even something else. Another sketch or another drawing that has been put forth before you it's almost impossible to trace over it with pure exactness. But you can follow the outline. You can follow the example. 
Another illustration that I thought was pretty neat was, uh, and of course, if you're like me from up north, you'll appreciate that one, uh, with a lot of snow. And here comes a son trying to follow in his dad's footsteps. We know he may not be able to reach every step that his dad takes, but he could probably get most of them. And he can follow the path that his dad makes. And that's the idea that we see here implied in following Christ as our example. We can follow him in that sense. We can trace out the sketch, as it were, of the Lord Jesus Christ. In order that we might be able to suffer as he suffered. Because he suffered for us. He suffered on our behalf. And because of that then, he says, we can follow out in his steps. We can follow the written example to be what God has called us to be. Whereunto you were called to do this. And so there is a purposeful outcome to following in the steps of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is to be like him. Now, in the rest of this uh, little portion that we looked at, verses 22 through 25, you'll notice then some things that he gives us concerning the Lord Jesus Christ and our relationship to him. Why does this play out like it does? What, you know, what is the ultimate outcome of following his example? And what did he do? What did the Lord Jesus Christ do actually to be an example for us? Well, he gives us a who in verse 22, a who in verse 23, and a who in verse 24, and then finally a four in verse 25. And you'll notice that the first three have negative connotations attached to them. So let's look at those. Who did no sin? That's important. He did no sin. As a matter of fact, if if you look at the theological explanation for this or uh, uh, outcome of this, it's called the impeccability of Christ. The impeccability of Christ is simply that he could not sin. And so... He who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. No deceit. No guile. Let's turn for a moment back to Isaiah chapter 53. It's virtually impossible to finish this little passage right here without looking at at Isaiah 53. So let's do that and observe a few things here that Peter draws from right from this chapter. Now, that's a well-known passage to us, Isaiah 53, concerning uh, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and his suffering on our behalf. He tells us in verse 53, 1, he says, Who has believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, But when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we uh, hid, as it were, our faces from him. And he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, 
And as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. So we find here that he did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. When you stop and think of this one, the Lord Jesus Christ, who had none of these things, we had all of them, and yet he took them upon himself. As we find a couple verses later here, in his own body, on the tree, he bore those things for us. Our griefs, our sorrows, our sins, our faults. And he had, he had none of those, except the wounds. He bore the stripes. By whose stripes, and that word stripes means wounds, you were healed. So, in verse 23, we find another negative. When he was reviled, reviled not again. And when he suffered, he threatened not but committed himself to him that judges righteously. I want to tell you, when we are being reviled against in an unrighteous way, we get our shackles up. We want to defend ourselves. And we want to turn the tables on the person who's attacking us unjustly and unrighteously. Why? Because we know we're right. We have done the right thing, so we want to stand up. That wasn't the Lord Jesus Christ. And you think, of course, your mind is driven specifically to the incidents of the Passion Week when he was so severely beaten, when he was questioned and mocked ruthlessly by his own fellow countrymen as well as the Roman leaders. And yet, through all of that, never spoke a reviling word, not even one, not even hinted at such a thing in all of his conduct, in all of his being and doing. What did he do? Committed himself to him that judges righteously. I guess, you know, when I read that, the first thing I think of is, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. And he's given us a principle here. You know, this word commit Uh, Let's look at another use of that. Look over in Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. I'll just give the idea what it means to commit here because it's it's a very practical thing. In verse 14, Matthew 26, verse 14, it says there, Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went unto the chief priests and said unto them, What will you give me, that, and I will deliver him unto you? Now, this word deliver, the same idea, same thought, same word. They committed him. In other words, Judas could have said, uh, um, What will you give me, and I will commit him unto you? The word literally means hand him over. I will hand him over to you. Well, that's what the Lord Jesus Christ was doing when he was being reviled by his fellow countrymen and by these religious leaders and by these Gentile leaders, Roman leaders, government heads and officials handing them over, committing them to him who judges righteously. And that's what we're to do. What's the kind of attitude or spirit that we are to have is simply turn them over to the Lord and just let the Lord handle it. We are not to seek vengeance. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, we're not to go to to court against one another. If you've been offended even by a fellow Christian, You're not to go to court against that person. You either go to that person and work it out amicably, or you just leave it in the Lord's hands. Well, he says in verse 24, well, yeah, he says in verse 24, again, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. 
So he who had no sin took our sin upon himself. He took our stripes on himself who did not deserve them and yet he did it of his own will. Matter of fact, he tells us that uh, over in, in the book of Hebrews, he says, I have come to do thy will, O God. His desire was to fulfill his father's will. He had a higher calling. God sent him for that very purpose, and he was determined to fulfill it and to carry it out. And so he would commit them over to the righteous judge. And in doing so, in doing so then, these crooked, perverse, unreasonable men went ahead and carried out, and the Lord Jesus Christ allowed it for them to carry out these things in his body, in the bearing of our sins on the tree. Now that word bear, B-A-R-E, he bare our sins. Let's look at that. Genesis chapter 8, verse 20. I know we're going to the Old Testament for that, but you remember that there is a Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. And one of the very valuable things to learn how words are used in the New Testament is to see how those translators who translated somewhere around 250, 300 years before the time of Christ to see how they use those words. In Genesis chapter 8 and verse 20, It says, And Noah builded an altar unto the Lord, and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The word offered is the same word. To, to The word bear here means to offer up, or actually literally it means to carry up. So in this sense here, we look at uh, Noah, he carried these offerings up to the altar and place them there as a sacrifice. And that's what we are looking at here with the Lord Jesus Christ. Our sins. And even were bore on Christ, but you've got to look at it two ways here. Not only did he offer our sins in his own body, but his own body then was the one that was bore up. It was the, one off, it was the sacrifice offered up on the cross. Let's look at um, another one here, Leviticus 14, well, yeah, a couple more. Leviticus 14, 20. This almost turned into one of those days and we were going to be really looking all over the place, but we're going to hold it down here just a little bit this morning. Leviticus 14, 20. There, just another example of what he's talking about, and the priest shall offer... The burnt offering, that is the priest, would be the one to carry it up and place it on the altar. Just to give you another instant or idea of how this word is used, what it means to bear up, to carry it up or offer it up. Now, with that in mind, let's look at uh, two things on this idea. Um, James. Let's go back to the New Testament, but hang on, because then we're going to turn around and go back to the Old Testament again, so... You may want to keep your finger back there somewhere near Isaiah 53. In James chapter 2 and verse 21, yeah, verse 21, and dealing with Abraham and Isaac. This is the very thing that Abraham did with Isaac when he bound him up and placed him on the altar. It says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works? When he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar, he offered him, he bare him up, carried him up on the altar, placed him there as a sacrifice. The Lord Jesus Christ was placed on that cross as a sacrifice. Now let's go back to Isaiah 53. And please pardon me for not telling you to keep your finger there. That would have made it a little bit easier. But in Isaiah 53... We find the same idea. In verse 12, 
the last verse of chapter 53, it says there concerning this this, uh, suffering servant that was prophesied would come to Israel. He says, therefore, will I divide him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he hath poured out his soul unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors and he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Same word again. And even it's even translated bear our sins there. But the same Greek word is used in the Septuagint to describe this matter of being offered up as a sacrifice. So it is a specific technical, uh, a word that has technical application at least, of an offering for a sacrifice. And that's exactly what it means here when it says that Christ bare our sins in his body on the tree, he was offered as a sacrifice on that cross. That we, then, being dead to sins, and this is where we gain, then, identification in Christ. Because he bore our sins, then we now are dead to sins. And that we should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes or wounds you are healed. God has brought healing to the soul. So you notice the contrast here then. Outwardly, these slaves were being beaten. These household servants were suffering physical abuse outwardly in the body. So remember, as he wrote to those strangers and pilgrims up there in Asia Minor, in Turkey particularly, and all throughout that area, he was telling them, you're suffering physical abuse. You are being mistreated wrongfully by your masters. But if you undergo that mistreatment patiently and you endure it with the right spirit of following in the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, he said, then you're going to find this to be an acceptable thing with the Lord. You're going to find grace in the eyes of the Lord. It reminds them in verse 15. For you were as sheep going astray. Well, if we went back to Isaiah 53, and we're not going to take the time to do it just now, but he says there, all of us like sheep have gone astray. We've all gone our own way. But he says now, in contrast to what these household servants had been at one point, sheep who had gone astray, He says, now you are returned. You have come back or you have turned about to the shepherd and the bishop of your souls. So you see how Peter has turned this from the outward expectation of the physical abuse that was going on. And Peter, by the way, the tense of that word implies that this abuse was going on right now then. Peter knew about it. So he was writing for the purpose of encouraging and exhorting these household servants to continue on under what they were enduring, what they were having to go through with Christ as their example. And knowing then, and I think the real, one of the real key things here, well, there's two things here I want to point out. Number one, he refers to the soul. You see, they could beat them on the body. They could wound them on the body. But with the right attitude and spirit of following in Christ's example, they couldn't do anything to the soul. They could not harm that. And they could stand strong in the face of of adversity in a time like that. The second thing is, is the word bishop. The word bishop is where we get, uh, the literal meaning of that is to be an overseer. One who oversees, an elder of a church the one who is the leader of the congregation, is said to be a pastor. Well, the word for pastor is the word for shepherd. So he shepherds the sheep. He takes care of them. He feeds them. He ministers to them, binds their wounds, cares for them in in every which way. But he also has the job of oversight. He oversees. In other words, he simply looks at observes, and then his responsibility is to go to that one. And this is where many 
bishops fail in their calling is to go to that one and to minister to or to counsel or to give the word of God to that one who may be about to go astray again, who may not be uh, fully following the Lord Jesus Christ as his example, who may be, say as Paul says it in Galatians 6, overtaken in a fault. You know, he says, you, you have, which observe that, you're to go to that person and seek to restore them. That's a part of the ministry of the overseer. Well, see, Peter, from probably several hundred miles away, is writing to these people with the idea of encouragement to them that there is one overseeing you. He is watching over your, not your body, he's watching over your soul. You see, it's the saving of the soul we saw back in chapter 1 and verse 9 that is the aim, the end, or the goal of the Christian life. The preserving of your soul. When? At the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or at the time, that the word literally means at the time he is unveiled. At the time the curtains are drawn back and he is revealed to this whole world. That's what we're looking forward to. And so is there any application of this passage to you and I? Even though we may not be technically household servants or slaves, there sure is. There's a world of application to know that the Lord Jesus Christ, in whatever capacity we find ourselves in this matter of grief, suffering, being treated wrongfully, he is our overseer. He is watching over my soul, the most important thing I have to deal with today as a Christian. I want to ensure that when that day comes, see, I can stand before the Lord and hear his word of approval, his word of grace upon my life, and to say, yes, it was acceptable. Well done, you good and faithful servant. And I trust that would be true of you as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the preciousness of your word and uh, even the many other things, several things here, Father, that we could bring out and point out that, that would be treasures to our hearts and our soul to encourage us to open our eyes to the responsibility that we have as a Christian to walk in dutifulness to you and, and to consider the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. We know also that it's not a hard, uh, it's not an easy thing to do. It's very difficult in the face of opposition, when someone is treating us and, and being malicious and, and uh, deceitful towards us, that we're to respond as the Lord Jesus Christ did. But we know also, Father, that you have not left us powerless. We have God's Holy Spirit to empower. As we obey your word, you will empower us to walk in an obedient way. This we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So, with those thoughts in mind, we want to sing a verse of invitation this morning and give you an opportunity to come if you feel like there's a need in your life or something that you want to express or share or commit yourself to by way of baptism or church membership, and we want to invite you to come this morning.